scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign uh, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Colby, for reading that for us here this morning. Uh, this morning, I want us to take a look at this passage, but before we do, I want to ask you this. Have you ever interacted with somebody that you are not sure whether to be deeply impressed with or really concerned for their sanity, right? Deeply impressed with or concerned for their sanity. And, and I'll tell you who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of those of you who woke up yesterday morning and jumped into a lake when it's 50 degrees outside to, to swim 1.2 miles, right? And then soaking wet, get out of that lake and choose to hop on a bike for a nice little 56-mile jaunt. And then get off your bike and go for a leisurely half-marathon run, right? Like, I don't know whether to be deeply impressed that your body is capable of that or to be really concerned about your mental state, right? But there's somebody even... There's people even crazier than that. Uh, this last week, I had thought I remembered this story of this, somebody who was really impressive. They ran 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. And it was, you know, they were like sponsored by Red Bull or something. And they, would, they had a little tr charter bus and they'd drive all over the, the country. And it was like... How on earth is that possible? And so I went to go find the story of that person, and I found somebody even more crazy than that dude. I found the story of Ricardo Abed, who holds the world record for most consecutive marathons. You see, he woke up on October 1st of 2010. Apparently, it's... It's a bad, big day for endurance athletes to make bad life choices. Uh, October 1st, 2010, and he uh, went to work at his factory in Spain where he, where he always works, building appliances, worked his eight-hour shift, went home, changed, and then just ran a marathon. Woke up on October 2nd, went to work, eight-hour shift, came home, changed clothes, ran a marathon. The third... The fourth, the fifth, you get the drift, right? Then his shift changes from uh, the morning shift to the, the, the evening, the afternoon shift, right? 
So then he has to, to uh, so that day he, uh, he went to work, eight-hour shift on the factory, ran a marathon, presumably slept for a minute, then got up, ran another marathon, then went back to work for eight more hours. And he kept doing this over and over and over again, all the way until February 12th, 2012, 607 consecutive days while maintaining a factory position and a family with a newborn infant, this man ran a marathon every day for over a year and a half. I don't know if you know how crazy that is, right? I don't even know how that's physiologically possible to do, and I'm quite certain his knees have like zero cartilage left in them. But somehow he did it. I don't know whether to, to, to be inspired by that kind of, that kind of dedication, that kind of, of, of pain tolerance, that kind of, of, um, of work that he went through to do that, or whether to be deeply concerned that there is something really unhealthy in someone who wants to get up every day for 607 days and run a marathon. As we come to this passage, we're introduced to this man named Paul. And if you're new to reading your Bible, this is one of those men who, who, who was one of the first, in the first generation of those who believed in Jesus and followed after him. And as we get to know him through the letters that he wrote, this being one of them, Philippians, we begin to understand this man and, and, and we're not sh quite sure what to make of him. The way that he thinks, the way that he processes, the way that he, he makes decisions, we don't know whether to be inspired by his intensity or whether to be concerned over his mental state. You heard the, the section that was just preached, but last week, if you were here, you heard Matt preach a, a sermon, that, and in that sermon, uh, in that text, the Apostle Paul runs through this hypothetical in his brain. Right? He's in prison, he is, he is abused, he is neglected, he is experiencing life to the state that, that he runs this hypothetical in his mind. He goes, what is better for me if I die and then I'm, I'm with Jesus or if I continue to live in this life of torment? What's better for me? And the answer is pretty obvious to him. He says, it's, it's actually better for me. It would actually be more comfortable, it would be better for my existence to, to die right here and now in this prison. But, but the way that Paul processes life, the way that Paul makes his decisions is not, in fact, based upon what's best for himself. He says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. He says, your need of me and your, your need uh, to hear the good news of Jesus, your need of my love and your support is worth more to me than me being relieved of the pain that I feel. We heard him in this passage that, that Colby just read for us, right? He, he, he sets out this principle for how to operate in life. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is how you do that. You let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. 
He's concerned with the why. How do you make the choices that you make in life? How do you choose to spend your time? How do you choose to, 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 to process life? And Paul says, for those who know Jesus, the way that makes most sense is based not best on what's, what meets my needs, right? But looking at, at how it affects, how our choices, how our investments affect other people. So when we look at the rest of, of Paul's life and we look at the other letters he writes, we get all these crazy examples, right? He goes, you know, I would really like to travel to this location, but these people really need me over there. So I'm going to change my travel plans based upon the needs of other people. He looks at his livelihood and he goes, you know what, I would like to, to be able to, to make a living off of my preaching, teaching ministry, but you know what, it would be more advantageous for people. More people could hear the good news of Jesus. More people could be affected if I choose to make tents instead. And so he makes a, a livelihood decision based on how it will affect other people. When he's arrested, he evaluates his legal options based on the outcome of other people. He chooses how he worships in the synagogue or in the churches based on how it will be heard and interpreted by those around him. He chooses his, uh, his romantic life or, or lack thereof based on how it will impact other people. He decides even w like whether to eat meat or not at dinner based upon how he thinks it will affect other people. Paul sets out this ridiculous pattern of life, not running a marathon every day, but to look at his life in such a way where he is constantly looking at how do I meet the needs, how do I serve and care for those around me, or in the words that he uses, how do I count others' needs as being more significant than my own? And then he looks at us. Well, he looks at the Philippians, and, and by virtue extension, he looks at us, and he says, but we're on the same page, right? He says, complete my joy by being in full accord and of one mind that you are viewing your life in the same manner that I am viewing mine. He says, we're engaged, uh, in verse 29, in the same conflict. You and I, we're called to this same thing. And some of us, when we hear the, the, the extraordinary lengths to which Paul is willing to go, some of us are going, okay, that dude's just crazy, right? Like, you do you, which means I think you're insane. Or we're saying, oh, I want to be just like him. I'm inspired. I'm motivated to do that same thing. And before you make up your mind, I want us to practice together a habit, whether you're reading a, a biblical author or whether you're listening to a friend, is to remain curious about why you are responding the way that you're responding. To ask the question, what does my response say about me? And how can I learn and grow from it? So first, I want us to take a look at these two responses and then finally look at, at what the text seems to implicate uh, why or how Paul manages to do what he does. But the first response is this. We look at Paul and we go, Paul, that is absolutely crazy. It is absolutely crazy that you are even suggesting that. 
And if you weren't convinced already, let me just heighten the level. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing because it advances yourself and advances your, uh, your standing in the world. Do nothing because it gets you ahead in life. Don't make your decisions in life primarily based on the good that it does for yourself. Or in conceit, or vain conceit, depending on the translation that you're looking. Don't make decisions in your life based upon how it makes you appear, or how it makes you feel about yourself. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because if we sit here with any amount of of integrity, we go, I think that's like 99% of my life. Is, is, is I'm making choices based on what gets me ahead in life or what makes me feel better about myself, right? We could run through, we could run through a little list here real quick, right? Um, okay, so how do you choose? What's the why? What's the ambition behind how you decide to spend your free time? Well, most of us, most of the time, are going to answer that question by saying, by doing what makes me feel good. What makes me happy? What brings me into more of the things or the experiences that I want? How do you pick your vocation, your job, your work? Well, you're going to go, well, either that which is most fulfilling and life-giving to me, or you're going to go, that which brings me in the most money. How do you pick your house? Well, the one that has the right number of bedrooms and the right number of bathrooms and is in the right neighborhood, so I'm safe and I'm comfortable How do you pick your spouse, that person that I feel this magical connection with and makes me feel like a million bucks? Where you can see pretty quickly we start adding up life choices, and and most often we make our choices on exactly those premises. What gets us ahead and what makes us feel good about ourselves. But then he goes on in verse 4, and he explains. He says, all right, so do nothing out of selfish ambition, but here's what I want you to do, right? The the negative and the positive. The positive, he says, let me phrase it this way. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he says, don't do something because it gets you ahead in life. Choose to do something because it's looking out for the interests of others in addition to your own. Right, so when you pick out a, a, a kid's school, you start going, what, well, not just like what is, is best for my individual child, right? But, but where am I able to, to, to care for and meet the needs of other children as well? Where it, goes, it comes to how you spend your Friday nights, your social life, right? You, you start going, not just um, who are the people that I need to feel that affirmation of being around, but who are the people who need me to show up in their life, right? If you invest your money, right, where do you invest your money? Is it solely based on the, that which gives you return, or is it in that which brings flourishing to the world that we live in? If you're in an argument with uh, or, or a competition, right, are you just looking out for yourself, or are you looking at how do you meet the needs of the other person? Anyone tired yet? Anyone exhausted? 
It's crazy. It's a crazy response, and, and, and we are conditioned to say that sounds crazy because we say that sounds deeply unhealthy. All right, we live in a world that is allergic to self-denial, right? We live in a world that uh, we live in a world in which we are told, quite frankly, that we, we deserve better than that. That if we deny ourselves the things that we want, then we will, then we will lose ourselves. We'll lose our individuality. That we will somehow we'll reach the point of combustion, and and we will be no more. It's it's not just that it seems unhealthy. It even seems almost immoral, right? That you're not being true to yourself. Now, don't get me wrong, we love an act of, of benevolence, right? You love when you pull up to the Starbucks lane and, you, you know, there's a little pay-it-forward action going on, like the person in front of you in the drive-thru pays for yours, and then you pay for that. We love those. We love that, right? We, we love the, 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 the little nonprofit that we can show up to the annual fundraiser for, throw in, uh, throw in a couple bucks, and feel good about ourselves, Right? We love a nonprofit even though we chip in and, and we jump in uh, with a certain allotment of our spare time. But what Paul seems to be talking about is, is something that's far more significant than that. Right? Something that is, is so far more significant to that to the point that we go, one, I don't know if that's even possible. But two, if it is possible, I don't think it's even right. I don't see how that could possibly be good. And so when I start trying to, to talk about what Paul's life is, we get offended that Paul even tried to live his life that way. And here's how I know uh, how far we are from this, right? Even as if you've been around Redeemer, you know that we, we talk a lot about how we want to be a church that's not for ourselves, right? That we want to be a church that, that is giving so much of our life to the neighbors that surround us, that we, are, that, that we want to do our whole life together in, for the purpose of benefiting those who are not in this room right now. And in the course of that conversation, sometimes we'll talk about the ways that we spend our individual lives, right? Uh, the, the, ways that, the ways that we make investments on where we live or where we go to school or, 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 or where we work or where we play, et cetera, et cetera. If you've been around Redeemer, you've heard this. And the objection that gets stated, the pushback that, that happens is not because we love Midtown. Nobody's offended by the fact that we love Midtown. It's not even the idea that, that there is this great spiritual need uh, that we can, can be a part of meeting. The pushback comes back when we go, no, no, no. What does where I live have to do with serving other people? Where I live, that falls into this category of personal preferences, right? That, that falls into the category of, of my individual decisions. You can't talk to me about how I, you, you can't ask me to think about uh, it in the sense of how it serves other peoples because that is excluded from what Paul is referencing here. Or we talk about uh, your job, right? And we go, well, that, okay, that goes in the personal preference category column two. 
We talk about what city you even choose to live in. And we go, oh, that's, that's a personal preference too. That doesn't have any bearing on how we love and we serve and we care for other people. And we could go on and on and on, right? How do you choose your friends, your significant other, right? And in all of those categories, we go, oh, well, okay, I know, Paul, that you're saying do nothing from selfish ambition or that which moves me ahead in life. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't apply to the personal choices I make. That just applies to this, like, um, 1% of my free time. That is how I will love and serve other people. You see how we've created a paradigm, a paradigm by which we, we sit and we look at Paul and we go, Paul, that is crazy, that is unhealthy, and that makes no sense. But it doesn't make sense to us, I want to suggest to you. I, the, it, it offends us because we have considered that our needs and taking care of our needs first is more significant than taking care of the needs of others. Paul says, uh, look out for, uh, count others as more significant than yourselves, or, or more likely count others' needs more significant than yourselves. But we've built a paradigm where we flip-flopped it, right? Where we say, I've got to take care of my needs, and then out of the reservoir that I thus have, I'm able to serve others. We think Paul's crazy, not because he's insane, but because he seems to be operating out of a value system that is utterly foreign to the one that we live in. But we don't just think he's crazy. Some of you here this morning might, uh, might think Paul a very different way. Not as crazy, but as inspiring, right? That someone could uh, endure such hardship, we think. We, we look at him and we go, oh my goodness, uh, if only I could live my life that way. Or probably what you think is actually, if only uh, everyone else in this room lived their life that way, right? So often we, we look at uh, what Paul writes here, and we, we love the concept that we could live a life worthy of the gospel, we love the idea that we could be standing firm, that we could be striving side by side for the faith. We love the idea that we could be not frightened at all. We're inspired by Paul. We want to be like him. And so we set about uh, 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 some method of, 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 of making ourselves to be that person. We argue and we, we fight. We say, this is what it means to, to be a Christian is if only um, people had the sacrificed the way that I have sacrificed for the good of other people. If only uh, nudge, nudge person next to me, you had as, as a sophisticated understanding of the world and of, and of evangelism as I do. You see, we think Paul is inspiring because we think that we can be better people, which is another way of saying we think that we can like the way we view ourselves even more. The problem is, you can't do it. You can't do it. You're not prepared for that kind of challenge. Uh, when Whitney and I lived in Chicago, since we're on the you know uh, marathon-themed things, we lived in, in the city of Chicago, and the Chicago Marathon is this big deal. 
And so every year on Marathon Sunday, we would get a watch and we would see, uh, we'd go out and, and we'd cheer and we'd try and um, find free clothes that people took off because it was too cold when they started. Um, we would, uh, you know, we, we, we'd watch in, in admiration of these people. But every year, there were some idiots in our college. The, the, you probably didn't need both of those details. They were in college, right? And so they, they would feel inspired uh, by this marathon. And so the next year, their sophomore year, whatever year, they would come and they'd be like, you know what? I'm going to run that marathon. So they would wake themselves up that Sunday morning. They'd take the L down to the start line. They'd you know, position themselves like a block away from the start line so that they could just merge it, you know, just jump on the race course and run with all the runners, right? Mind you, they wouldn't train, of course not, right? Like, they, they, they were just like, I can do 26 miles. I can do that. And so every year, there was a handful of, of, of kids in our college who would do that. And, and I will say, because they were, you know, 20 years old, somehow some of, the, some of them would manage to complete the race, but I can tell you this, none of them completed the race the way that they thought they were going to finish the race, right? In fact, they would, like, disappear from campus life for, like, a week because they were laying, you know, in the fetal position in their bed uh, in their dorm room, right? Because they, they thought, oh, I could go and I can obtain this. I can go and I can be like those marathoners, but they did not have what it took. They weren't prepared to enter into that. What they were doing was they were trying to make themselves feel good about themselves, to raise their reputation, right? They loved the idea of the marathon, but when rubber met the road, they were not up to the task. And so it left them in the fetal position, pain coursing through their bodies. The same can happen to us. Someone can listen to that, the, the first point of what we talked about, and you can hear Paul, and you can go, I want to be just like that. I know where it is, and I can give more of myself. I can give away more of my money. I can volunteer with the right nonprofit, and I can become a better version of myself. You could tell stories all day of, of ways in probably all of our own lives. But we've seen it. You've seen it in, in, um, in families that, that make uh, these big, feel a conviction and they make these changes. But they try to make these changes based upon a, a, a novel idea rather than the actuality. Let me give you an example. I have some friends, right, who... Um, don't live here, don't live in this city. Um, and so, uh, but they, they had a, they were wrestling, right? They had kids and they were wrestling with how they thought through their schooling choices. And in fact, they started feeling really convicted that they had made choices not based, uh, that they had made choices based upon selfish ambition and vain conceit, right? That they had made choices for themselves. And so they, they, take their kids out of the, the private school where they were at, and they throw them into a public school, right? And then the rubber meets the road. That the education was not the, the same pattern of education that they had expected. It wasn't the academic rigor that they wanted for their kids. 
this uh, you know romantic notion of of the 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 diversity that they were going to experience in this public school was not the romantic version that they had in their mind. And so they're like that that college kid trying to run a marathon and they get to mile 18 and it hits the fan and life falls apart. And when life falls apart, bitterness and anger and envy come into play. God does not invite us into a, a, the idea of loving people. God invites us into the business of, of actually loving people. There's a pastor who lived um, during the World Wars in Germany called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in his book, Life Together, he, he says this, By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but a God of truth. He said, for the one who loves his dream of a community, of, of loving and serving other people more than the Christian community itself, becomes a destroyer of that Christian community, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Because see, if you love the idea of people, if you see Paul and you're inspired and you want to go out and you want to try to do that, what you love is, is an idea, not a person. And if what you love is an idea, then what you really love is that you love the version of yourself that you see in that image. When you love the idea of a self-sacrificial community, what you love is you love that you could feel like a good person. But that is not the story that Paul is writing here in Philippians. He is not saying that you should, can, or even ought to go and to give out your life because he knows that that is not sustainable. Instead, he offers this. Instead, he offers this, that, that this life that he is living, this life that he is articulating, this life that he is prescribing for the Philippians is neither some her, uh, Herculean uh, uh, effort on the part of those who do it, nor is it some insane, unsustainable pattern of life. Instead, what he represents for us is, is that this pattern of life, of self-giving love, is an ordinary common response to an extraordinary love. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. Then you'll be able to do nothing from selfish ambition. Then you'll be able to look at others' needs as more significant than your own. You see, Paul was captured by this vision, this animating story in which the God of heaven and earth left his heavenly abode to come be a homeless man living on earth. One who did not consider uh, his own benefit, but came to meet the needs of his children. He considered the needs 
of us as more significant than his own. And if that's your animating story, if the animating story of your life is, is that there is a God who loved me when I was acting like a self-righteous punk, then the way that you view your life, the way that you create your value system is drastically different. No longer are you held to, to have a value system that's based on personal preferences and comfort and security. But instead, you have the opportunity to see life transformed in front of you where you are able to truly love other people. You can do that because he says that there's comfort from love, meaning God's love. That God has so entered into your space and your time and your place that you don't have to justify yourself and tell, you that, tell yourself that you will be a better person. He so loves and cares for you that you don't feel like you have to defend yourself at all. But you can be transformed in being able to see yourself as you really are, a child of God's. He says that you're going to be driven by because of you have a participation in the Spirit. In the Bible, it talks about when God uh, redeems us, He gives us His Holy Spirit that works in and through us to cultivate new loves and new desires and new passions. That you don't have to have a, a miraculous plan for your life. You don't have to have a miraculous self-improvement plan. He says if you are in Christ, then you are given the counselor. That you are given the one who will, will lead you and guide you and walk you through life. So that you can make all those small little choices, not because you have the right philosophy, but because you are making those decisions in conjunction with the one who is right. Lastly, he says, if there's any affection and sympathy. If you begin to see the world, if you begin to see other people not as a drain on your resources, not as a drain on your preferences, but instead as, as, as cre creatures with dignity and love and honor then your choice to serve them and love them and to reach out and to, and to find, meet, seek to meet their needs becomes not some extraordinary act of self-sacrifice, but the ordinary pattern that you want because you want to see them flourish. In other words, Paul's contention is this, is that if you are with Jesus, then even these extraordinary acts of service, this extraordinary example that is being set before us in Paul's life is not from himself, but is an ordinary response to the extraordinary love of God. I don't know if any of y'all have been um, camp counselors, but I did my tour of duty one, one summer when I was in college. And I worked in a camp with, uh, specifically, like I had an eighth grade boys cabin, right? Um, and if you... Um, Eighth grade boys operate just like the rest of us, right? They would come into the camp, into cabin uh, that week, that first day, and they would be driven by fear and protection, right? And the way you would see that, you'd see them mocking each other and, and mocking the kids who are different. You see that in the way that they 
they compete with one another, right? Who has the biggest flex? Who has, has won the most accolades in their sports? You see it in how they, they, they posture and treat one another. They're scared to, to let themselves out of, of a shell. They're scared to put themselves out there where people could truly know how they feel and how they think and, and what they love. And yet, one or two days in this extraordinary environment, right? An extraordinary environment where, where some college kids treated that eighth grade boy like he mattered, right? One or two days where that uh, eighth grade boy felt a sense of, of belonging and care. One or two days of that eighth grade boy experiencing that people love him whether he performs or whether he doesn't perform. One or two days of somebody looking at him like he has something to offer and you begin to see even in, in a very quick amount of time, the way that they relate one another change. As their guards become to, to the guards are get let down. As they start actually seeing one another, actually caring about how one another's doing. You see them start doing things like, you know, cheering for their teammate even when their teammate makes a mistake. You start to see them respond according to the pattern that they've been shown. If one or two days of being loved on by a, a college kid can transform a, 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 a child's experience of camp, how much more? How much more will our vision of the world and our participation in it be transformed when we experience the radical love of Jesus? How much more will we be able to see the needs of other people when we feel so loved and cared for by the, the, the maker of heaven and earth? How much more will we be willing to give up even of, of our own ambitions because we know that in the end, the love of God will reign on this earth? You see, what Paul is suggesting is not crazy. It's also not a pattern that you should try to imitate on your own. What Paul is suggesting is the ordinary, everyday response to being loved with an extraordinary love in Jesus. I pray that as we hear his words, as we consider how they impact our life, the decisions we make, as we are drawn to maybe repent of, of motives and ambitions that are not from God. I hope that what we see, I hope the enduring mark upon us is the image of Jesus. Because it is the image of Jesus that transformed Paul. And it is the life of Christ that will transform us. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you, in your kindness to us, would not let us spend our lives seeking our own advancement or our own self-image. But God, I pray that you would free us to know that we are loved in you, to know that you have given us life. Father, I pray that we 
would love our neighbors and that we would love one another, not out of a love that is within us, but a love that we've been shown in you. Be with us, we pray. Amen.